Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Is It Possible to Drink Just One Glass of Wine a Day? by Letty Teague. Then an article by David Rosemarin, Screening for Anxiety Will Just Make Us More Anxious. Jason Gay has an article, What Happened to the Relaxing Days of August? And we'll follow that up by In My Room on the Waterfront by Bob Green. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article. Is it possible to drink just one glass of wine a day? Reading the most recent dietary guidelines for Americans from the United States Department of Agriculture and the United States Department of Health and Human Services, I found that women are advised to drink one glass of wine or less and men two glasses or less daily. Do many follow this advice? I actually did, at least for a while. Ordinarily, I drink more than one glass a day, usually two. And when I took a casual poll of friends and acquaintances, I found that I'm far from alone in exceeding government guidelines. Very few said they stop at a single daily glass. Some drink more than I do. What if I downscaled my drinking, at least for a week? What short-term benefits might there be? I decided to give it a try. The 2020 to 2025 guidelines cover a wide range of topics related to food and drink and contain extensive nutritional advice. For example, the guidelines suggest that around 85% of one's calories should come from nutrient-dense choices like fruits, vegetables, and grains, leaving the remaining 15% for other uses. Alcohol ranks among those other uses, and the advice regarding its consumption is especially stern. Consider, for example, evidence indicates that among those who drink, higher average alcohol consumption is associated with an increased risk of death from all causes compared with lower average alcohol consumption. The list of conditions that might occur as a result of excess alcohol consumption is quite long and quite sobering. I'll spare you the specifics here. I was disappointed to find that the government's proposed one glass is a stingy five ounce pour of 12% alcohol wine. If I got five ounces for a $25 glass of wine in a restaurant or bar, I'd be tempted to object. Six ounces is generally considered the industry standard. A few restaurants I know even pour a bit more. Furthermore, most white wines these days exceed the government's 12% figure, and it's increasingly hard to find any red wine that isn't at least 14% alcohol or more. Warmer weather means riper grapes, which produce higher alcohol wines. A 5-ounce glass of 12% alcohol wine has about 120 calories, according to the guidelines. Unless you consider foregoing that one glass a day to drink two glasses the next, 
The guidelines discourage that. The one drink or less a day for women and two for men, they stipulate, is not intended as an average over several days, but rather the amount consumed on any single day. While I didn't save up my wine allotment for a few days to have three glasses the third day, I did deviate ever so slightly from the official guidelines. I drank a six, not five ounce serving, and the wines I drank almost always exceeded that 12% alcohol figure. I like lower alcohol wines, but they're elusive and I didn't necessarily want to drink a low alcohol Muscadet or Vino Verde or Lambrusco for several days in a row. I wanted something a bit richer and more complex. After all, since my husband rarely drinks more than one glass at any time, once I opened the bottle, we would both have to drink the same wine for several days. That meant I had to consider the closure too. Screw cap bottles stay fresher longer. Additionally, there was the question of timing. When did I want to drink my one glass? I didn't want to drink too much or perhaps any of the wine before dinner because I'd have nothing left by the end or maybe even the middle of the meal. Drinking my one glass of wine very slowly, however, could be a positive development. Perhaps I'd savor the wine even more. Would I merely be eking out tiny moments of pleasure until I reached the too soon end? And with the white, I found that the wine grew tepid over the time it took me to drink it. With so much on my mind, I found after a few days that I was not only drinking less, but also eating less food. Then came the challenge of eating out. A few days into my one glass regimen, we met friends for dinner at our favorite BYO, Divina Restaurante in Caldwell, New Jersey. How would I be able to measure just one serving of the very good 2021 Bruno Giascola Roero Arnese, a white wine from Piedmont, Italy, that I brought along? Chef Mario Carlino provided a measuring cup. Drinking only one glass proved economical, as one one bottle was enough for our table of four. Our friend Bobby, like my husband, doesn't drink much at all. He, in fact, had been the only one of my friends who didn't recoil when I'd announced I would be drinking just one glass. My friend Bert said he could drink only one glass of wine as long as I have a martini beforehand, while my friends Robert and Tom adamantly dismissed the idea. One glass? Never, they declared, nearly in unison. Not even for brunch, said Tom. Your first glass sets you up, mellows you, and then you have a glass of wine with dinner, Robert added. Your third glass could be dessert, Tom suggested. At the end of my one glass week, I noticed a few clear benefits. I'd lost a couple of pounds, and I was sleeping better too. And yet, despite such positive developments, when the week was up, I happily went back to drinking that second glass, and another half glass on my first day back to my normal routine to celebrate. I'd missed the sense of an expansiveness, of total relaxation that comes with sitting down to a meal that begins with a glass of wine and extends to another that I don't have to carefully parcel out. My husband even drank a second glass with me. Maybe I will go back to drinking one glass of wine with dinner from time to time, but not right now. A few weeks later, I had a checkup with my doctor. 
a top gastroenterologist in New York and a non-drinker. I told him about my one glass of wine scheme and asked what he thought, fully expecting some sort of commendation. You could drink up to a half bottle a day of wine, he said, and you'd be fine. And now, Screening for Anxiety Will Just Make Us More Anxious by David Rosmarin. In response to the country's anxiety epidemic, an influential panel of doctors appointed by the United States Department of Health and Human Services recently published a new set of guidelines. All adults, they recommended, should now be screened for anxiety by their primary care physicians. As the founder of a large clinical practice focused on anxiety, I stand to benefit from increased referrals. And yet, I've been lying in bed at night with growing worries that this policy will compound our anxiety epidemic. All of us experience anxiety, and it's awful, but it is not a disease. Anxiety can become a disorder when persistently elevated levels cause significant distress and encumber life activities. Such anxiety disorders are common, with nearly one in five United States adults experiencing them each year. But there is a great difference between anxiety and anxiety disorders. The latter depend on how much distress and dysfunction anxiety causes. The mere occurrence of anxiety is nothing to be medically worried about. All human emotions, whether positive or negative, serve a vital function, and anxiety is no exception. Common anxiety symptoms include a rapid heart rate, increased breathing, muscle tension, stomach upset, and feeling on edge or easily startled. All of these are physiological responses to surging adrenaline, which is how the body mobilizes to deal with perceived threats. Anxiety is an indicator that our fight or flight system is working, which is a good thing. Newborns who do not exhibit the moral reflex, startle response, typically have severe neurological or spinal cord damage, and most do not survive. For all these reasons, it is impossible to assess whether high anxiety is problematic just by examining how anxious someone is at a given point in time. In some instances, high anxiety is expected, adaptive, and not pathological at all. I disagree with Dr. Petros Livonis, president of the American Psychiatric Association, who recently commented that constant worry is itself a signal that one needs professional help. A current example. In Ukraine, since the Russian invasion, residents who experience nervousness and uncontrollable worry nearly every day are probably better off than their neighbors who are less anxious. They are more likely to survive a military attack since a stress response yields benefits such as greater situational awareness, quicker response time, and even constriction of blood flow in the event of industry injury. Granted, after the war, Ukrainians with high baseline anxiety may be at greater risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. But when we decontextualize anxiety and simply assess its quantity, we risk pathologically normalizing even healthy events of the human emotional experience. 
The new guidelines call upon physicians to use the two-item General Anxiety Disorder Screening Tool, GAD-2, which asks patients how often they have felt anxious or unable to stop worrying over the past two weeks. Its clinical cutoff to distinguish between normal and abnormal anxiety is purposely low. Anything more than a report of not at all for anxiety and worry triggers potential diagnosis and treatment for an anxiety disorder. This creates a high risk of false positive. 32% of individuals identified by the GAD-2 as having clinically significant anxiety do not, in fact, have an anxiety disorder. That is because the tool only assesses the severity of anxiety, not whether symptoms cause distress or impairment or whether there are situational factors that may make anxiety a normal response. Overdiagnosis of anxiety disorders is not inconsequential. The most widely used class of anxiety medications, benzodiazepines, are already overprescribed and have a known propensity for abuse and addiction. A bigger concern is that unduly focusing medical attention on anxiety when it does not impair life activities could exacerbate the anxiety. Many individuals with high anxiety are not bothered by their symptoms and function just fine day to day. Such individuals now be told by their primary care providers that they have a diagnosis and need treatment, which may trigger a greater flow of adrenaline and increase the chances that they will develop an actual anxiety disorder. We have been here before. The opiate crisis was initially born from compassion, notwithstanding corporate greed on the part of pharmaceutical companies. Physicians sought to reduce the suffering associated with physical pain and eagerly posted the now ubiquitous row of emoji-like faces in their offices, ranging from smiling to grimacing, to provide a tool for gauging pain. Any patient report of significant pain intensity even by way of a finger point, could yield a prescription for opiate-based pain medications. The tragic results of this approach have made it clear that emotional, behavioral, and other factors must be assessed prior to the treatment of physical pain. Similarly, diagnosis of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, skyrocketed when the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that pediatricians routinely screen for its symptoms. Physicians were encouraged to use a simple checklist without analysis of any other demographic or clinical factors and to prescribe Ritalin and other stimulants as a first-line treatment for any child over the age of six. Within a few years, there were signs of nationwide overdiagnosis and overprescription. This had a disproportionate impact on children whose birthdays happened to fall between August and December, since younger children within an age cohort are naturally less attentive and more impulsive than their same grade peers. To be clear, the GAD-2 is a valuable tool for mental health professionals. It encourages them to probe further about symptoms and to follow up with specific questions about whether patients are truly distressed, how much their symptoms affect them, and why they may be experiencing high anxiety. 
but its use as a standalone screener for already overburdened primary care physicians is an entirely different proposition. Perhaps I'm just too anxious about an overdiagnosis of anxiety disorders. After all, is it possible that screening will prompt physicians to be more attentive to emotional and behavioral health and to take the necessary time to determine when anxiety is truly problematic as opposed to normal or even adaptive? Time will tell whether this well-intentioned initiative is helpful or harmful. In the meantime, my own nagging worries seem to be contextually normative and healthy. And now, what happened to the relaxing days of August? The other day, I reached out to a large Europe-based company for a comment on a story, and I was met with a very polite but non-committal response. Basically, we'll see what we can do, but doubtful. Headquarters is already on August holiday. Not on holiday for the first two weeks on August, or even the first three weeks. They're on holiday for August as in all of August. See you suckers in September. I know what you're thinking. That's Europe for you, buddy. But honestly, I'm jealous. Our friends across the Atlantic still perform summer correctly. They relax, they unplug, they wind down, they don't return emails, and definitely not telephone calls. Who returns telephone calls anyway? This isn't 1973. They definitely don't sweat writing a humor column in a financial newspaper. They commit to the serious summer business of doing nothing, and August is their prime months for that. Sounds great. Can we try it? I know we're all proud of our commitment to the American work ethic, but I wouldn't mind if August went back to being, you know, August. It hasn't felt that way for a while. August has become as chaotic and loaded as every other month on the calendar. Appointments, deadlines, meetings, Zoom calls, daily business barging its way into any remaining relaxation. I think it's more accurate to call August pre-September. A four-week sprint to make sure everything, work, school, family, is in order before the calendar turns the page. A lot of kids are already back in school. They dislike August even more than I do. I'm old enough to remember a time when August was the casual Friday of months, a precious four weeks when not a lot got done and it was possible to check out from polite society at least briefly. A responsible human could detach from news and current events. They could definitely hop off the hamster wheel of social media because there was no social media. The closest thing was the bulletin board at the farm stand, with the sign offering one free glass of goat yoga, class of goat yoga, and a local selling a canoe with only five holes in it. They were glorious, unburdened days. Back when August was August, you might not know a major event had happened and someone told you at the bait shop. Did you hear? Hear what? Texas invaded New Jersey. No way. Hey, do they still have night crawlers? August ignorance wasn't a crime. In September, you could safely return to the rat race and discover, to your great delight, that the Yankees and Red Sox had both choked away the American League East division title. I blame phones, which today can be blamed for somewhere between 100 
and 104% of life's problems. That device you carry in your hand, it's like an exploding jack-in-the-box containing frantic news of the real world. Pick it up for five seconds, suddenly you know what's going on back at work, who got promoted, what celebrity couple just broke up, and what the newest presidential polls just said. You learn a meat crat is on the loose in San Diego. None of this information is essential, but now it's stuck in your head. You find yourself scrolling, and all of a sudden you've read 16 articles and watched four YouTube videos. The edge of your brain is panicking about what you're missing at work. You're no longer in August. Welcome to the cold bath of pre-September. It doesn't have to be like this. We're starting to get civilized about work-life balances, reconsidering office commutes, and the value of spending time with family. We should commit as a nation to making August a respect. We should not have to read a humor column in a financial newspaper. If Texas does indeed invade New Jersey, you can catch up in September. That was Jason Gay. And now, Bob Green, In My Room on the Waterfront. I was walking along the Hudson River in Lower Manhattan when I decided to turn onto Pier 45, a promenade that allows pedestrians to get close to the water. Scores of people were on the pier, savoring a summer afternoon. At the far end, I heard someone singing lyrics that I have known for 60 years. The world where I can go and tell my secrets to. It was In My Room, the 1963 Beach Boys song in which Brian Wilson's pure, youthful voice told a haunting story of finding solace behind a closed door. In this world, I lock out all my worries and my fears. It wasn't Mr. Wilson's voice I was hearing on Pier 45, though. Someone else was singing a live version of the song. An African-American man, around 70, sat alone at an electric keyboard. He didn't face in towards the pier, towards the people walking on the pier as he sang, but out towards the river itself. Mr. Wilson, 81, has been ailing lately. He isn't touring or performing in public. Those who love his music miss him. And here was this man on the pier singing to the water, seeing the words on which Brian's voice had conferred a kind of immortality. I continued my walk and left the pier, but quickly decided to circle back and talk with the man. His name was Daniel Al-Mateen, and he was 74. He liked to play and sing, he said, and his favorite genres were rhythm and blues and reggae. I told him that as a friend of some of Brian's band members, I knew that Brian would be warm to hear about the solo performance on the Hudson and that I was pretty sure I could get word to him. But I had a question. Why? In my room? In this place? On this day? Mr. Almatine said he had been feeling especially wistful about all the losses in his life as the years have passed. His mother, gone. His father, gone. His brother, gone his sister gone, his best friends gone, and his wife gone. So he put his keyboard and a power pack into a shopping cart and wheeled it out to the end of the pier. In my room, he had long thought, was so beautiful, so poignant in its seeming simplicity. He wanted to remind himself that 
The people we have loved may have left us, but they are with us forever every time we think about them. Do my dreaming and my scheming lie awake and pray? Do my crying and my sighing laugh at yesterday? I asked him about the setting. Why, with the private thoughts that were filling him, had he left his own room to come sing in my room to the river? You don't need a castle, he said. You just need a place where you can go to stay out of the maelstrom. I promised him I would find a way to let Brian know about his lovely rendition on this New York day. Please tell him thank you, Mr. Al-Madin said. Please tell him thank you for everything. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.